0: Welcome to Research Radio, Episode 5. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Dr. Nancy Freeman from the Lyle S. Hallman Faculty of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University about her research regarding the experiences of mothers who come into contact with the child welfare system. I'm your host, Matthew Hollingshead.
1: So, I'm Nancy Freeman, and I'm a social worker by training, by discipline, and I'm a former child welfare worker, which I think is important for this interview. Um, Right now, I have a small clinical practice in in the Dundas area, and I specialize primarily in trauma work. Um, I'm also an associate professor in the Faculty of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University, and I'm a lead researcher in a program of research that we call Building Positive Systems of Child and Family Welfare.
2: Thanks so much for making the time to speak with us today.
1: Oh, that's my pleasure.
2: So can you tell us a little bit about what we'll be discussing today?
1: Today I want to speak with you about research that I carried out about the experience of mothers whose children were placed in out-of-home care. Now this research was part of a larger initiative called the Partnerships for Children and Families Project. This was a, a shrc funded project under the direction of Dr. Gary Cameron at Wilfrid Laurier University. So the mothers that were in my sample were mothers who had come to the attention of a Children's Aid Society in Southern Ontario. It was a qualitative study with a sample, there were 31 of them in total. Now, 18 of these mothers had a child who had been apprehended. Essentially, that was against the wishes of the mother. Another 13 of the mothers had requested child placement. Now, for the most part, and I, I'm kind of generalizing, but for the most part, these were mothers who had been caring for a child whose behaviors had were very difficult to manage, and the mother was experiencing a lot of stress related to the parenting challenges and uh, she was phoning the child welfare organization asking for support and sometimes asking directly for child placement because she felt she really could no longer manage providing care. What I was particularly interested in with these mothers was to talk with them about their everyday experience.
2: What can you tell us about why mothers are so important in relationship to the child welfare system? I know there's been a lot of research done about mothers in this area, and I wonder why you wanted to dive into this topic.
1: Well, I was at the time I was thinking about this research, I was a PhD candidate. And if you've done a PhD or ever taken on a master's thesis, you always get this advice that you need to pick a topic that you're really passionate about. And... When I came into the PhD program, I had about, you know, 300 ideas that were rolling around in my mind. Um, so so I was sort of, you know, working through those ideas, wondering, you know, what should I do? What's going to sustain my interest for a prolonged period of time? You know, what am I really passionate about? And sometimes you can have lots of different things, but but getting zeroing in on that one and. One thing that you want to spend some time with can be a bit of a process in and of itself. And I was going through some of the child welfare experiences that I had had, and child welfare it sticks with me. It's um, something that I I feel very passionate about. It's um, I've heard other child welfare workers say it gets in your blood, and I, I think it's in my blood. And it occurred to me as I was trying to decide how to focus my research that I had worked with many mothers, and many of these mothers were mothers who had experienced out-of-home placement. Um, Sometimes I had actually brought their children into care, and one of the things that I was thinking about as I was pondering my Ph.D. research, I was thinking, I wonder what had become of some of the the women that I'd worked with, some of the mothers whose children um, had been in care, what, what happened to them. And I had this very uncomfortable moment where I was trying to imagine what their lives might be like now. And it occurred to me that I didn't have a lot of information about their everyday lives. I knew about them as child welfare clients. I knew about them in relationship to the kinds of risks that had been identified. I knew about them um, just in terms of some of the processes that you go through when you're a child welfare worker and you're, and you're bringing a child into care. But that it, those many of those everyday realities, other aspects of their lives, their broader lives, I didn't seem to have information about that. Enough for me to be able to remember and imagine what their lives could be like now. And something about that just struck me as uncomfortable. And I started to ask myself a whole bunch of more questions about why that might be. I think particularly for matters of child placement, this is important. I think child placement is is one of the most profound interventions that a social worker can make. It alters lives. It alters lives, sometimes permanently. So I think it's um, imperative that we know um, fully who who we're working with, who, whose lives we're involved with. Um, and that, that picture seemed less than full for me at that point.
2: I suspect that desire to have a fuller picture and understanding of the people that you're working with is something that a lot of practitioners have experienced and struggled with over the years they've been working. I guess the PhD program gave you a pretty unique opportunity to dive into that a little bit more.
1: Well, that's that's one of the sort of the the privileged things about doing PhD studies is that you have you have the time and you have the focused energy to really
2: um, give some full consideration to questions like that. Too. So so, what can you tell us about what you found during your research?
1: Yeah, um, well, before I move into that, maybe I, I think I should probably make a couple of other points about the gendered nature of child welfare. And, and I think you identified it properly when you said, well, lots of research has been done on mothers. And, and I, I kind of want to pick up on that point with you. I think that we have a a child welfare system that is gendered. And by that, I mean that we tend to have an inordinate focus on mothers in the child welfare system. And so I I think one of the things that could be said about this research is, well, why do we want more research focused on mothers when we seem to already focus on them a lot, um, just by virtue of the work that we do? Um, so I think I need to make a couple of caveats, um, particularly around the issue of fathering. So if you look at um, analyses of policies, practices, literature, case reviews around the issue of fathering, it seems as though they demonstrate kind of an irrelevance with regard to fathers in the child welfare system. Um, I know that one particular researcher has talked about them as as being ghost fathers. And there was a study by Brown in 2009, and what they found was that in more than half the time when the father was deemed to be at risk to the mother, um, he is not contacted, and that often fathers are not considered placement resources. And now there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, and, and I think that's another whole discussion that we could have. But what I would like to say about my research is that in advocating for more responsive interventions for mothers, I don't want to leave you with the idea that we should intensify our focus on mothers. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I move into talking about the findings, I will be advocating for having a different focus on mothers. Uh, I want to think about how we can look at them beyond the lens of the child welfare assessment framework. And I think we really need to take seriously the important roles that fathers play in caring for children, um, also extended families, also communities. In fact, it would be my argument that if we provided more inclusive interventions, um, that is interventions that are more, you know, broadly attend to the child's environment, um, that this would be good for mothers. And I think also the other thing that I want to just say um, before I move into the findings, is that um, even though there has been this inordinate focus on mothers in child welfare systems, a focus on their everyday experience has received less attention. And I think there's a couple of um, reasons for this as well. Now, historically, and and I think this this is really changing, but historically the expert advice of professionals like child welfare workers has tended to obscure other sources of knowledge and ways of knowing. I think in research we have historically attached more value also to quantitative research methods. Ideas about experience are hard to quantify. But in qualitative methods where I think there's, a you know, a, an increasing um, willingness to to recognize qualitative research as, as uh, you know, a very valid source of knowledge. We can put mother's experience under the qualitative umbrella and hold that up for people to see and and attach value to it in ways that maybe wasn't possible you know, 20, 30 years ago. But I also think that we have a, a very dominant ideology around mothering that frames a lot of our thinking if I was to say to you or to a room full of people, tell me what a good mother is, I think you would find that many people would respond consistently. Um, So mothers placed in out-of-home care are tend to be constructed in ways that are outside of what we agree to be acceptable about good mothering. So their mothering is portrayed as deficient, it's potentially abusive, um, inside systems of child welfare, we talk about these mothers as being at risk, and so the argument goes. And whether you agree with it or not, I think that there's sort of this sense that, well, why would we ask them about their experience? Like, what do you expect they're going to say anyway? And so their feelings and their experiences have have been kind of obscured or or less visible. And I want to challenge this kind of thinking, because I think the experience of mothers really does matter. The lives of children and families, are, or mothers and children, are intrinsically connected. And most children that are involved with child welfare will continue to live at home or continue to have contact with their mother, even if they're in foster care. And we know that when youth exit from the care system, that they're all often looking for their family of origin, or they're looking to reconnect with their mother and with others that that they've been separated from.
2: Um, Please please correct me if I missed the point, but it sounds like you're suggesting that there is a different standard of mothering for women who have come into contact with the child welfare system, as opposed to those who, I guess, mother outside of that system.
1: Yeah, I... I I I don't know if it's a different standard of mothering, but I think they are viewed differently. I think we have, we make assumptions about mothers who come into contact with child welfare systems. We make, we assume that there's deficient mothering at play somewhere. And and that frames... How you begin to think about who they are, think about their experience, think about how you will make this assessment becomes framed. And it becomes framed in relationship to this dominant ideal we have about what good mothering should look like. I think in that way that, that our thoughts and our ideas about who these mothers are have, have been constructed for us in those ways. And, and I, I'm, I'm wanting to challenge some of
2: that. Well, now I'm really curious to hear what you found when you were conducting this research.
1: In this research, I had 26 life histories. Um, So I had used a semi-structured interview with 26 of the mothers that I spoke with. And then I had five mothers where I used what I call an oral story approach. And so for these mothers, I had um, more than one interview, usually about three interviews, and they they would range anywhere from 19 minutes to two hours in length. The idea between the two strategies was that I wanted to interview um, a broader number of people, but I know also in qualitative data that you can end up with a lot to manage. So for five of them, I wanted to understand um, their experience in more depth but I, I think what I'll do today um, in the interest of time is I'll probably talk to you about three themes um, that I I want to shine some light on so the first um, theme that I want to talk with you about is is this whole idea of first contact so mothers in this sample were almost unanimous that the first contact with the a child welfare worker with the system of child welfare needed to be different for mothers of the children who had been apprehended. And again, these are are, are tended to be mothers of younger children, um, and apprehensions tended to be against the will of the mother. What they were indicating to me was that workers would arrive during times of crisis in their life that. Um, it was not a good time for them to begin with. There was lots of chaos happening in, in their life or could be lots of chaos happening in their life. Then a child welfare worker knocks on their door and immediately they're afraid and they're unprepared. And one of the, I, there was this one mother that I interviewed and she just had such a powerful story. Um, she said, uh, the first minute they walk in that door, you can't breathe. You don't even know what to do. And then before you know it, your whole life is gone. And that that quote just sticks with me when she talks about that moment and trying to defend herself and trying to put forward what was happening in her life. And, you know, just feeling misunderstood. Sometimes mothers reported that they felt dismissed. Sometimes mothers reported that they felt that, that it didn't matter what they had to say, that somehow this decision had, had already been made that there was an urgency, everything was rushed, and it just was a very powerless moment for them. Now, you know, somewhat ironically, we have also mothers, and these, again, I'm I'm generalizing a little bit, but these tended to be the mothers whose children had been placed because of behavioral challenges. They almost seemed to have the opposite problem. So for them, they had the experience that they would call, they would ask for help, but that whatever it was that they were saying in the midst of those phone calls to the system of child welfare or to a worker, they weren't able to trigger child welfare involvement. So for them, it seemed as though they would ask for help, sometimes repeatedly ask for help, and then a crisis would erupt in their family, and then a child welfare worker would would come. And so they had this this sense that they did, you know, they reported, if I'd have known, I would have said different things in the initial call. I might, I might have said more, uh, you know, they didn't use this word, but they, they would have said, I, I might have said more provocative things to try and get the worker to come and get some support. It, you know, they often felt like by the time the child welfare worker arrived that it seemed to be too little too late. And I think that's one of the the messages that was all of the research, all of the mothers, that first contact was very important. And in the oral stories when I talked with mothers, I didn't prompt them to talk with me about any particular aspects of their child welfare experience. They were free to talk to me about whatever they wanted to talk about. And I, I had hoped that there would be many other things beyond just child welfare experience, and, and indeed there was. But what was interesting was that that first contact, every mother spontaneously talked to me about that. About that.
2: Hmm. It really sounds like it might mark the beginning of a separate um, chapter or maybe phase of their lives,
1: yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. I want to make a point too about um, congruence of what I call ended up calling congruence of intervention, but what mothers would talk about in terms of intervention was that they would be told things to do like they they were told to attend parenting groups to go to counseling services and and in other various things depending on what what their issues were that they were struggling with and so for these mothers many times it felt as though I help was imposed on them um and sometimes they'd say you know I I would go to different places for this counselling and that counselling and here and there, and I had appointments all week long. So, many mothers would say that they, they just sort of played the game, like they, they showed up to attend to the things that they had been told that they needed to do because they wanted to get their child back. What they did report was helpful was material resources, um, transportation, uh, daycare, those kinds of things. The more concrete interventions. Sometimes if a, a worker came into their home and spent some time with them, teaching them how to play with their child or, or working with them on just different aspects of childcare, they would report that liking the more hands-on kind of involvement of workers. Um, so that that was that was critically important, and I think also, and this kind of takes me into a third point that I would make that they emphasized in the interviews was that they really wanted good relationships with their workers. I sometimes, when I say this, I I remember as a child welfare worker myself, you know, sort of bracing for the hostility and knowing that it was really difficult. To make good relationships with mothers whose children you were sometimes apprehending against their, their will. And that, that's a very difficult relationship to navigate and to negotiate as a worker. And sometimes you almost felt as a worker, well, they probably didn't want to have a good relationship with you anyway because of what was happening to them and their family and the role that you were playing in that. But actually when I talked with mothers, they they talked about wanting to have a good relationship. They wanted good relationships with their workers. They also wanted to safeguard their relationships with their children. I think sometimes as workers, or at least I know, maybe I'll just speak for myself in this situation, but I I think that sometimes we don't, Pay enough attention to how important that is for for mothers to feel heard, for mothers to feel respected. In the stories that mothers would talk about, they would talk about this one worker that would make a difference in their lives. And invariably, they would say this was the worker who listened, who took time with them, who acknowledged the good things that they were able to accomplish as mothers and really affirmed their identity as mothers. When child placement occurs, it shakes them, it shakes their kind of their foundations, their understanding of who they are in terms of mothering identity. So when you would have a worker who would reinforce, who would say things like, That was a really great piece of mothering you did there and where I can see how important your child is to you or what a good relationship, a strong bond you have with a child. Mothers would, would remember these phrases and they would, they would repeat them back to me in the interview. So those were things that really stuck in their mind that seemed important.
2: I guess you've kind of mentioned this issue a bit throughout the interview about the idea of the the values of mothering and the values that are ascribed to different kinds of mothering behaviors and different mothering identities. I'm wondering how you manage your own values about mothering and of being a woman in general when you're researching a topic like this because I guess it seems like it might be a bit difficult to navigate those boundaries and borders
1: well that's that's a real challenge and i i wrote reflexively about that in my my dissertation because you i'm also a mother and i'm also you know subject to the the values that we place on good mothering and then the other part of me would try to position myself as a, a, a child welfare mother, and having a worker knock on my door, and how I'm going to feel in that moment, and how I'm going to feel about the prospect of having a child removed, and if I try to imagine that in my own life as a mother, that that would just that would shake me so much, and I, I think that's why um, the mothers that I spoke with just talked a lot about having their identity as mothers reinforced Um, and just being very afraid. And even though it's it's not necessarily based in fear, but just being really afraid that this better mother is going to, you know, the foster mother, the good mother is going to do a better job with your child, look after your child differently, look after your child better. Um, You know, that's all, um, it's frustrating, but beyond that, it's perhaps... I can't quite get the word, but maybe intimidating. Maybe um, there's so much vulnerability free, there. Yeah, so much vulnerability there. That's a that's a great way to describe it. It's that vulnerability. So I think paying attention to that is critically important when you're doing work with mothers whose children have been placed.
2: I think that we've already wandered into this area a little bit. But what kinds of lessons do you think the practitioners can take away from your work?
1: Well, I think that um, we need, and and, and again, I want to I want to. Be careful about this um, in the way I, I talk about this because I don't want to leave you with the impression that I think workers are doing bad work and need to do something to change their work. I'm much more interested in child welfare systems making structures that allow workers to bring forward you know, their best abilities. And so I'm interested in changing the structures. I'm interested in the way as a system we think about child welfare and about child welfare delivery and what, what we put in place to, to enable workers to do their very good work. So the first thing I would want to say there is that when I consider the experience of mothers whose children were placed, that it directs me to the importance of early help Now I know that adversities in families that um, so the complexities of families who are struggling that adversities have a starting place and that over time adversities can multiply and they can intensify and I think in the current, structures of child welfare the current ways that we do the business of child welfare workers are directed toward later entry points with families and so they're coming into families once the difficulties have already intensified once there are more risks um, and that this is, this is a very difficult time to enter a family and problems tend to be much more entrenched. And so you 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 end up in this situation where you you tend to be imposing solutions because you're trying to manage the crisis of the events um, that are occurring in the family, and and sometimes I think it leads to more intrusive interventions. So my argument would be to come into families at an earlier stage when problems are. In their earliest stages of development and where we can have interventions that are more negotiated. We're not necessarily in the midst of a crisis and that you can work with mothers to co-construct more congruent forms of help. And I think, I think that's, there's a, you know, certainly we have policies around the importance of customized responses. And I think that this is a, this would be an excellent strategy to be able to to um, make that more of a reality in our current system.
0: You've been listening to Research Radio, episode five, a conversation with Dr. Nancy Freeman. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.partcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PartEIP. That's P-A-R-T-E-I-P. Thanks for listening.